Is my video on? Can you see me? No, no, your video's off. Oh, hello. There you go, there I am. All right, welcome to my 90s music podcast. The podcast where I talk to the people who lived, loved, and were in the eye of the storm of the best decade ever, the glorious 90s. Today, I have the pleasure of being in a Zoom, sorry, with Nigel Clark from Dodgy, and he's an incredible singer, as you know, an incredible songwriter, and an amazing solo artist in his own right. I had a great time chatting with Nigel, and we cover loads of stuff, going all the way back to the 60s, to punk, and also playing guitar soon with Toya, who actually is one of his heroes and lives across the road from him. We obviously talk everything 90s and we kick off by talking about the 80s and the 90s and why it was a more simple, possibly easier time for us all to live in. Just to say, this isn't my normal house, by the way. This is just a background. So I did wonder, I was thinking, whereabouts in Scotland are you? Uh, well, I, so I'm from Scotland originally, but uh, I live down in Brighton now. Oh, right, okay. So, uh, before that, we were Milton Keynes, so hence wow. uh, at Woburn, uh, at the stables. Oh, of course, yes. There. Apparently they're looking to build flats all around about it. Oh, right. And what, and what the, it's dead cheeky, like the people that are building the flats are complaining about the noise from the music venue that's been there forever. So it's... I don't know. So yeah, just one of these house builder things. So yeah, yeah. yeah. I know. I mean, it's it's it, it gets very depressing when you sort of I don't know. I mean, I I just look back at the you know, you know, it was a lot simpler then life, you know, and you didn't see you know issues were really simple. Like you know, it was like if you were a racist, you normally had short hair and you wore red laces in your Doc Martens. <laughs> you know what I mean? Nowadays it's very difficult, and they they're like. They're like, you know, it's across all boards, you know, it's like women and, you know, anybody, you know, it's just, so it's very hard to sort of like sort of navigate your way through the world now, whereas in the 80s, it was really easy. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Well, I felt it was anyway, but maybe it wasn't, maybe, you know, for, I don't know, I don't, I don't know, one of those things, isn't it? It's quite difficult to sort of imagine where we're going in culturally these these days, you know, because... You know, all of my friends, pretty much, are musicians or sound men or technical people like that. And, you know, I can't offer them anything, you know, and they can't offer me anything at this moment in time. And it's really desperate times. I mean, I've been sort of living in this house for about nine years and I have a studio in the basement. So uh, I'm in the middle of, like, moving my studio to another place so I can make a bit more noise with the idea of making... A new record because I want to do. I'm releasing a record uh, in October, uh-huh. an album that I did 20 years ago. So if this is the sort of album after I left Dodgy in 1999-2000, well, I started writing an album and then I recorded it in 2000, but I self-financed it and I ran out of money. Yeah, and it was only since lockdown that I just sort of went. I sort of started having a look at it to see if I could remix it, and I just didn't have all the files. And so the mixes I did, I've got remastered and I've had it put on vinyl, so it's coming out. So that's really exciting. Yeah. So there's a, all in all, I think there's about 15 tracks, but there's, there's only nine on the vinyl album because I could only fit nine on. So. <laughs> but I'm going to do a CD and, you know, and it's, really, it's been really exciting doing that, you know, and, and 
because it's a lot easier to put music out nowadays than it was 20 years ago because you know I mean and now I mean you know I've been I've got quite used to doing virtual gigs so in a way from my basement and getting the sound I like things I like challenges to get in the sound right and stuff like that so yeah I'm gonna probably do a couple more gigs before the release and stuff like that as in like from my new studio playing some of the new songs well they're 20 year old songs but (laughs) no one's heard them so it's really exciting and it's I suppose if anyone wanted to know where I was where I was going after Dodgy, that's the sort of closest thing to it, really. You know, what's well, kind of like is this like your smile, like your Brian Wilson, yeah, project sort of thing? My madness, it possibly is. I mean, it was. I suppose that was a bit. He was a big influence on me, and I think that one of the big problems I had in the nineties was, you know, I was, you know, a bit of a hippie, a bit of a anarchist hippie whatever I was you know I was like trying to do something different in my own way and still do but um, I felt that you know the industry sort of got in the way of everything that I wanted to do and I felt like a commodity I felt like I was a product which I was you know um, but that was very difficult you know so I mean you know it was a, it was a strange time I loved the start of the 90s the end of the 90s were my favorite yeah, <laughs> couple yeah. of years if I'm honest yeah well, I mean, if if we you know do go back then, I mean, you know, the sort of the late the late eighties and, and just getting into the nineties, I mean, what was sort of happening then? So there was a couple of initial bands, was there in Romsgrove and Redditch and that sort of area? Yeah, I sort of I started music when I was really young, really. So I started uh, uh, playing guitar. Like my mum would, my parents wouldn't buy me one, or they, yeah, I was either that or an Atari. <laughs> the Atari console <laughs> so, and uh, Christmas was coming up and I was like really wanted a guitar really wanted an Atari because I was really into punk I was like a massive Dead Kennedys fan and Crass and Discharge and lots of anarcho-punk bands but obviously The Clash as well Stiff Little Fingers so you name them really I was really into punk started going to a few gigs or Bad Brains and UK Subs and you know, I got really into American hardcore for a while, which you would never know from my music necessarily. But um, just at that point, Nigel, that's a really important thing. I think when you hear what people's influences were, and then you know, because I, I was doing a podcast with Clint Wynn the other day, and he was saying how much he was like really influenced by REM, and you were like. Right. I don't, you know, you just kind of never saw it in spirals at all, you know? So it's kind of funny what your interpretation is then from you. Yeah. Today, you know? Well, I think I took from it. I mean, I, I, I don't necessarily listen to much, but I will happily listen to some crass records now. And me and my friend Mark have a, a little covers band called Unpunked and we acoustic, what? play punk songs acoustic, <laughs> uh, which is good fun. But we did a crass one. But um, what I really got into was the DIY effects because I used to work in a record shop when I was about 15, an indie record shop. So I used to, well, I was supposed to be at school, really. So uh, don't tell my mum. And, and so all these records used to come in and I was really into the, the sort of, the, the sort of, you know, the DIY effect of punk rock and, and you know, making a seven-inch single. And I think that carried on through my, that's carried on, I still have that. I just don't have the need and desire to shout or, you know, to play heavily distorted guitars, which I don't. I think as we get older, in my opinion, for me, 
my music sense has got a lot quieter <laughs> in oh, a yes. way, you know, in a way, a lot more controlled, should I say. Yeah. Like the, the old sort of like going into a rehearsal room for five hours with a band in a close proximity and bashing things out. I don't really do anymore. I don't think I would enjoy it. Maybe I would enjoy it probably, but I'm more into acoustics and harmonies and drum machines and stuff like that, you know, yeah. if I'm honest. Yeah. But, you know, you start your journey somewhere and your journey starts because of, of something. It's, it's kind of like a relationship when you meet a girl, isn't it? And you fall in love. You can't stop thinking. I was, I look back to my youth and think, God, how lucky I was. I was so excited to like, you know, paint on jackets, sex pistols or just to be a punk was yeah. so brilliant just yeah. was such a it was amazing and and you know i know that those you know it's weird because i live opposite toya and De robert fripp oh in here alone yeah yeah they live over the road and I, 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 i'm doing some i'm doing some well not recording we're doing a, a live video thing tomorrow and i'm playing guitar for toya tomorrow oh great on her first album, which is like uh, from 1979, which is a really good oh. album, I didn't know. So I've been learning the songs for that. So I mean, this, you know, it's, it's good because I, I listened to her and thought, this is a really good album. I'd never heard it before, but you know, yeah. do it on acoustic. You know, it's, it's a nice sort of cycle when you go around and, you know, you meet some of your heroes from that era. It's good, it's good fun. Well, just when you were saying about the, you know, getting into acoustic as you're getting older as well, Part of that Laurel Canyon stuff was just seeing Jackson Brown with a guitar, just playing. And I think a younger me would just have written that off and went boring, you know. But I think yeah. the older, like you could see the feeling and the calmness and the control and the just everything that was going through it. I'm not a huge Jackson Brown fan, but it was great to see. No, I know. But the, but the strange thing is going. I was thinking about this gig, this COVID whatever gig, I don't know what to call it, this Norwich Norfolk showground gig. But I was thinking, because of the way, you know, did you see the pictures of the Sam Fender gig? Yeah, yeah. You've seen that. Yeah. I don't know if it's going to be like that, pens. It looks like a pig farm. <laughs> <laughs> Sorry to say. But like, you know, they're all penned off. Yeah. <laughs> but, um, you know, they're all penned off. And I was thinking, well, in some ways... One of the problems before when I was doing acoustic gigs was, you know, you're in a bar or you're in a, a wherever, and there's a lot of talking. Yeah. We all know it. We all know it. We all see it and listen to it and get annoyed at it. And you deal with it in your own way. I normally just turn up or sing songs about those people that are talking and everyone else can, you know <laughs> what I mean? That's always a good one. But I was just thinking with these pens and all this sort of thing, then people are going to be more... Are going to be listening more, so it does enable the artist to take their time, get into it, which I'm quite looking forward to because I think rather than rushing through my songs trying to get to the end and go, "Phew, that's that one's over," yeah. I'm actually going to play a few slow songs. You know what I mean? And see how it goes. You know? Well, I think there's a few things from seeing it. I'm getting old, right? You know, I'm sort of 43 now, nearly 44, and uh, it looked ideal to me, right? I just I don't like big crowds and being squished anymore and you know I've done all that you know yeah so I thought, I thought, but the thing I was thinking weirdly I was thinking about Evan Dando uh, and his acoustic stuff and I thought it feels like a seated it's got the atmosphere of a seated venue yeah what would benefit the artist just uh, I like that I mean I've that, always what? preferred I've always really liked playing theatres I mean I do you know I do like going to clubs but when you play in a theatre you have to raise your game because you can hear a pin drop but it's really good for the audience because they're comfortable. There is a sort of 
there is a sort of unspoken thing where no one, but people are quiet and respectful. And I really like that. In fact, the last gig I did was March the 14th with Mark and Chris. And that was in a theatre in Bromsgrove near where I started my music. And that was it. That was the last one. That was my last gig of 2020. And then me and Chris and Mark are going back on, you know, doing this one in September. So it's funny. It's a funny art. It's been, yeah, I don't know. And I haven't worked since then. Yeah. And I don't, and I mean, I've been keeping myself busy. I've been doing a lot of writing and yeah, a lot. I've been doing a lot of stuff. And I've an exponential learning curve on videoing and doing streamed gigs uh, and stuff like that. But I haven't earned anything. Yeah. My, you know, from last year when I did 80 gigs, and you know, grossed quite a lot of money this year. I'm probably on one percent yeah. of that, and it's that's crazy. Now, if you put that, multiply that by I don't know, oh, quite a lot. Yeah. The, the government aren't making any tax revenue. I'm not making any money. What the f is going on? <laughs> so then, you know, just just sort of going back to some of the '90s stuff. Then, you know, talk about dodgy and, and all that. So. You were looking at initial bands, was it Purple, and then you started moving into having like the dodgy club at back? Yeah. So just before, I'll just, just go from that school, that job at the record shop, and then we sort of, I joined a couple of punk bands, and then sort of around 17, 18, I just, I kind of, from about 16 to about 18, I even later, yeah, I stopped listening to music. Oh. I just, I just, uh, I couldn't, and it was like kind of, if you think, it was probably around 1984, and probably there was CA, I didn't really, it was a very, the start of the independent music scene started post-punk and all that. And I was just like, I kind of felt that like, you know, when, when Jesus and Mary Chain came out, I thought I'd heard everything, I thought I'd heard it all before, in a way. And it wasn't what I wanted to hear, because I'd heard, I'd been into like Dead Kennedys and hardcore and going and seeing Jesus and Mary Chain doing like, you know, I was just like, now this is going backwards. So I never got on that tip at all. I missed that completely. And I never, and I got back into buying music. And I suppose I, some of the albums that really meant something to me were like Talk Talk, uh, yeah. Spirit of Eden, and The The. Yeah. REM, again, going back to REM. I, I went to America. I had a job and I had a mortgage when I was 19. Okay. Hence why Staying Out for the Summer was written. So I had a mortgage with a girl. I lived with till 21 and then I decided that I was just too young for all this you know and so I just sort of jacked it in and then I went to America on holiday and just toured around it wasn't a holiday like you'd know well anyone else though it was just like we went to New York and then hired a car and slept on beaches all the way down to Florida it was good fun yeah. but the soundtrack to that was REM Great. and a document album and when I came back I was already planning to move to London and I'd already met Matthew by then, and we hadn't got, we were in a band called Four, and I'd just joined as their singer. They'd lost their singer, or sacked them. And then I said to Matthew that I'm moving to London, because I was like, you know, I just thought that I'd, I'd had a job, I'd had a mortgage, I knew what was next, which was kids, and I was too young, and I just thought, I'm not gonna, so, I, so I'd sort of cleared the way for me to be a little bit more free. And so I moved, to, me and Matthew moved to London, and then that was the start of, the part of chapter two, do you know what I mean? It was like all the way up to there. And then that was a totally, we didn't know anybody. We moved into London in 1988 and we started, we auditioned about 30 guitarists. And then the last person we saw was Andy. Mm. 
who was very quiet, quite sort of self-subdued, but a very good player. But he was like sort of, he'd, all he'd been doing is spending his days or evenings playing Led Zeppelin and Jimi Hendrix. Right. And who we liked at the time, and we still do, and we were listening to a lot of The Who, The Doors, a lot of the 60s music, really, we were really into. And, and you know, modern music. But that was, there was a lot of that. And then, so Andy joined, and then we were doing, like, sort of, Gigs like those of George Roby in London and Ladio in Arms and uh, Merlin's Cave, but they were all you'd, you'd get a gig, you'd have to pay the venue thirty quid, and they'd give you two hundred shitty tickets. Yeah. And but we didn't know anyone, so we we were living in London. We didn't know anyone we were from Birmingham, Midlands. So eventually, after about three or four months, I said, "This is pointless. We're not getting anywhere like this. We're just joining a, a big sort of like line of sheep." Bands, do you know what I mean? So it was like that. And I'd go, you know, and I was just like, I didn't, I was working and then I stopped working because I thought that working was counterproductive to what I was trying to do in London. I was in London for a reason to do music. I wasn't there to get another job and stuff like that. So I tried to avoid working. Sounds like I'm a shirker. I wasn't, I was writing songs. And then um, we, I decided that we should find our own venue. So we went out one night in the van and we scoured the area and we found a, a little restaurant in Kingston that had a basement. And we said to the guy that owned it, can we rent your basement out on a Tuesday? And he went, yeah, I'll keep the bar. You keep the door. Fine. There's only about 150 people. But uh, we took all our PA down and that was it. We started putting posters up and we had the Dodgy Club and that was it. So, and it, but it was ours, it was unique, and it felt like we were doing something that, you know, and the weird thing is, that venue, it was a restaurant before the basement, that venue, 30 years on, is still going as a venue. Oh, is it, then still? In, in Kingston, yeah, it's still going. I think Beggar's Banquet use it, and there's DJ, drum and bass, DJ nights, and stuff like that, so that's really cool. I only heard about that last year, so... I might try and do something. I might, don't know whether we do an acoustic gig there or something, just to, you yeah. know, at some point, you know. Good, sort of serendipity. And so that was getting up to the Dodgy Club days. And obviously during that time, we were sort of, this was like 1990. We were going out in London and stuff like that. I mean, I mean, it was a bit later when the Good Mixer and, you know, but we used to go to the Camden Falcon a little bit later as well because they all started to like sort of, you know, bloom, and then we started getting gigs after that, about 91, 92. But we created all our own interests. So the record companies would come into the Dodgy Club in Kingston to see us. Yeah. And we only played for about five, no, we played about five or six songs and then DJed the rest of the night. Right. And what were you so, what, like, what, what songs and also what songs were you playing DJing? Really, the song that we had at that point that was the most important song was a song called Lovebirds. Okay. So that was a song that I spent a long, long time writing. I really, it, it was like my sort of, um, yeah, it was like my lesson in, and I still, I'm still learning this lesson, but it was my lesson in songwriting. Yeah. And yeah, so Lovebirds took me a long time to write, like diff, so many different versions with breakbeats. I remember having, I used to do breakbeat stuff and having breakbeats on it. And then finally I got the chorus and, uh, and then we recorded a version with the band and then it was just like, everyone loved it. So that was the record that got signed. It opened every door for us, but it was never a hit. And it was like a real shame. I mean, uh, but that was the song that was, a, you know, that opened it up. Then we had Summer Fair, 
And then we had, I think we had around, around that time, this is about 91, we had Grassman, mm. which never went on the first album. And we had a song called St. Lucia. And that was about it, really. And maybe another one called 5-4 that we never, we never recorded yet. I have a version on 4-track. So I have all these things. So yeah, I have all these old things. I have like, I have old versions of Blue Tone songs that I recorded in 1990, before they got signed of their first album on 4-track. So it's quite, I've got loads of stuff like well, that. Were you producing for them? Yeah, yeah, I recorded all their stuff, yeah. Because they lived with us in the same house. So I built a studio in the garage. And then um, I used to record people and stuff like that. I've always done that. Yeah, I remember seeing the Blue Tones the first time that, uh, they were on the White Room. Yes. Do you remember that with Mark, uh, Mark Rutter? And uh, do you know that way, just from afar, you were like, fucking hell, the Stone Roses are back. Like, what, what, you know, just like from that, with the shuffle and the thing. And then once we you, used, you were like, wow. You know, that's what we used to call them. Oh, was it? Yeah, yeah. We used to, because they used to walk, we used to, they used to, we, I was like long-haired and like, like quite a hippie, but I liked the Stone Roses. But I remember when we first met them, we used to stand, sit, stand outside the window, because they used to live over the road from us at the time, with their, Mark and Scott. And they used to walk across in their baggy jeans and we'd call them Stone Roses wankers and stuff like that. Stone Rose wankers! Just for a joke, you know. But uh, yeah, we ended up being really good mates. And so that's that's endured. And now it's funny that, like, you know, we're doing we're doing more stuff together. And we're even, I think me, Chris and Mark, are, we've got a plan. We had a plan for April to go away and do some writing together. But I think that's now, it's in a couple of weeks, we're going to uh, go to a house down in Kent me, Mark and Chris, and we're going to start doing some songs together, writing. So yeah. we've all been like, I've just been going, well, these will be good for the three of us, mainly acoustic, and we'll see. We'll see where it goes. I mean, that's what you've got to be like this day and age in music. You, you know, I see, I like being busy. I like, but also it's, it's sometimes difficult when you're in a band that was known for the 90s, dodgy, and then... It's, you know, we've done two albums since then, but it's really hard to play those new songs because yeah. now everyone wants to bloody staying out for the summer or, which is fine, good yeah. enough, or make, you know, making the most of or whatever, which I like, but it, it almost boxes you off. Yeah. But with the fact that with me, Mark and Chris, it's like a, a carry on. It's like, oh, I wonder what that sounds like. Yeah, yeah. You know what I mean? It puts, yeah. it puts a ping in someone's head and they go, oh, that'll be good. And the good thing is it's very natural and we do, we've done, we started doing singing together, like singing a few songs like Neil Young and we're all seeing ourselves as the next Crosby, Stills and Nash, albeit a little bit older. Oh, Christ. Which one's Graham Nash? Jesus Christ, he's on a wanker. <laughs> yeah. maybe, maybe we don't have him then. I mean, I, I, hopefully I would be Neil Young in all this. Yeah, yeah. Bits of, you know, so I'll be Neil, uh, Chris can be Crosby, and Mark can be Stills. So Crosby, yeah. Stills and Young. We just I'd, missed Nash out I'd together. Him, I'd give him a, yeah, I'd, I'd give him the heave for. And then, so what about starting to record the albums then and, and obviously meeting Ian Brody and Hugh Jones and, and all that? I mean, that must have been a bit of a buzz as well, right? Yeah, so first of all, we did, when we signed to A&M Records in about 91, they said that at the time, uh, there was a thing where like majors, major record companies were evil. And so bands like Primal Scream, The Stone Roses, Teenage Fan Club, I mean, a lot of them were on creation. And so they were really cool. 
even though they were owned by Sony. Yeah, yeah. You know, at some point, you know, while they saw that, you know, there was loads of deals going on, but they, the media and the news, the, the editors at Enemy and Melody Maker thought that they were cool. So bands on majors got a real bad life. They were just the next police or sting or, you know, or whatever. Um, so we had some money to go and do three singles, which we did, which was Summer Fair. And we did that with Paul Schroeder, who was the engineer on the first Stone Roses album. And Paul's a really nice guy, so, but he wasn't the producer, but he was, he was a lot of great ideas and really enjoyed working with him in residential studios. Did that one with him. I think we did all three with him. I think we did. And then the record company didn't want to use him for the album. So they were saying, oh, you know, what are you going to do? And I think I watched the chart show. Do you remember the chart show on a Saturday morning? Yeah. With their big headphones and the graphics. Yeah, yeah. yeah, yeah. That's, yeah. And then the advert, yeah. And um, I, I was watching that, and I think uh, Pure or Life of Riley or one of those songs by the Lightning Seeds came on. And I thought, this guy's got, you know, pop sensibility that could be could work. And so we arranged to meet him, and then eventually we moved. We went. We moved to Liverpool, basically to the Park Street Studios, Amazon, and we lived there for about three months in the studio. Countless stories about that, but eventually we came out with an album, which was, which had Lovebirds on it. It had uh, Water Under the Bridge. I need another. I can't remember what other singles. I don't know. But you know, it, it was a good album. I kind of felt it was a little bit overproduced right. for my sort of taste. I was very much into Neil Young, Buffalo Springfield, all that. And I wasn't too keen on little drum machines and cuckoo sounds and stuff like that. <laughs> which, which, but you know, so, uh, you know, it was, but then it came out and we went on tour and, you know, it was a great experience and, 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 a, and a long lasting sort of relationship with Ian as well. I mean, we don't talk as much, but, I do see him most years and we have a good chat sometimes, you know, so that's good. And I know he's still writing, but he's, he's like looking at the music and going, well, how do I do this? What do I put out? Where's he going to go? You know? So there's a lot of questions now that artists ask themselves before they even get creative. Whereas we never used to do that. We used to do it because it seemed really simple. Get a good song, send it to a record company. They like it. They put it out. Mm. Now it's, there's no record company. Well, also there was there was so much. I remember being in uh, in the, in the city a few years back. Um, you know, when Tony Robbins was still alive, and I worked at LastMinute.com and we sponsored it, right? So I think it was like fifteen grand was my sign off, and I made them do it for fourteen nine 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 so I could go. You know, so we went mm-hmm. up and ended up we're on panels and all that. But I saw a panel and it was McGee. Uh, it was a guy from XL, Peter Hook, and somebody else. And they were saying exactly this. I mean, back then, and this was like, uh, well, that would have been 2003, 2004, maybe. And basically they were saying, there's no one thing anymore. Because before it was, you got on Radio 1, you got on some of the commercial stations, you got on top of the pops, and also you had someone filtering the nation's music, music, which was John Peel. After that went, rightly or wrongly, it's like overload. How do you know where to navigate to find these new bands? Oh, yeah. I mean, it's oh. exactly that. I mean, it's like you've got a favourite band. I've got a favourite band. I might not have heard of your favourite yeah. band. Clash Can Sinatra is my favourite band. 
There you go. So I, mean, I do. I've heard of them, but I've probably, I've heard, I'll probably have heard them, yeah. but not enough. Do you know what I mean? If you're if they're your favourite band, why haven't I heard them? Yeah. Were they your favourite band from years ago as well? Yeah, I mean, so the, the, the boys they all lived in Irvine, which was the next town. But it's um, Eddie Reader's wee brother uh, that's the lead singer of the band. But just kind of been through thick and thin as a fan with them, you know. But then there's yeah, like, yeah, the Rosies and yourselves, the Britpop stuff and all that. But what you, have you got an absolute favourite then? Absolute favourite band? Yeah. What from the nineties? Well, just in general, yeah. I mean, I, I, I sort of. It's sort of weird, isn't it? When I ask myself, I used to be able to answer that question quite easily. But like, like I say, it's like, uh, I mean, I've been to some great gigs. I mean, I, I suppose in the 90s, and it didn't really happen. I mean, my fa- one of my favourite albums from the 90s didn't happen until the late 90s, and it was the Flaming Lips. Oh, um, soft, soft Bulletin. Soft oh, Bulletin. Bulletin, yeah, yeah. Brilliant soft things, it does. Yeah, great. And I, and I really liked that, and I kind of liked their, their sort of way about things, you know, a bit psychedelic and, you know, but then I don't know. I don't know who my favourite band would be now. It changes on a yeah, daily that, basis, really. Yeah. No, definitely. And then when you were touring, you know, just in general as well. I mean, did you enjoy that? And was there great things about touring? Bad things? Bad things about touring? Songs you loved playing? Songs you didn't like playing? You know, all that sort of stuff. Touring back in that day was sort of because you. I mean, this is the thing. You're so young, and like, or you feel so young, and it's all. You know, you go, and each venue is different. So you're only as good as your last gig. Yeah. And I remember do, we used to do a lot. We used to do, I remember once we did like 20, I think we had 24 gigs in 22 days or something, or, or the other way around, 22 and 24, which was exhausting, but good fun. And you, we meet loads of people. But the problem with us was we, we liked to party as well. So after the gig, you'd be out till six in the morning, then you get in the bus, and we did that. I mean, we still bloody do it sometimes, <laughs> and uh, yeah. So uh, it was it was very tiring. But you know, we just we, there was nothing else in our lives. There was it, this was what we'd worked for. There was no other, you know, nothing. I never even had a proper house to live in. Do you know what I mean, I had a bedsit that, that I never went to. My 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 wife actually laughs at me when I first took her back to my bedsit. She said, you haven't even got any bedding <laughs> or a quilt or anything or t- anything. I just like, you know, I just gave myself to, to, to that, to music. And for the first couple of years, we toured around Europe, but, but we just couldn't get our record released in America. And this seemed to be an ongoing thing. So the first album did OK, you know, sort of like it got well reviewed in the music press, uh, but it didn't really match on sales. Then the second album, Homegrown, obviously everyone knows that one because of staying out for the summer. But we still couldn't get it released in America. And it was like, this was beginning to like sort of bubble under. It's like, you know, all these bands were going to America and failing. Yeah. You know, and Dodgy, who probably had the most American sound out of all of them, yeah. you know, in a way with the harmonies, oh, yeah. we couldn't get anything there. And so it just felt really wrong. And which culminated later on in, in 1996 when Free Peace Sweet came out and went platinum. We did a showcase gig in New York and we were doing, we'd already toured Canada and Canada was going really well. We did a showcase gig in New York and the Americans were really funny about us. They just didn't get it. Right. So, well, the, yeah, so we, we ended up in a really 
nasty situation with with Polygram was the company at the time because we we said that they were having they were restraining our trade. They weren't releasing our music to the biggest market in the world, yeah, yeah. which is a restraint of trade, which is a court case. And and I think once we realised that, that was really you know for me anyway, I just felt like a real kick in the teeth that if we were going to get our record released in America, we'd have to take the whole of Polygram to court. Not not in a so, position. Yeah, and I just you know I just become a dad, and I was just like. Yeah, it's one of those things you just notice. And I think that was a big player in my decision to just like go, do you know what? I've just kind of had enough of this. It's like, it was very, very challenging. And, you know, once you've done one album and gone, oh, this isn't getting released in America, and then you do another one that's even more successful that goes platinum and it still won't get released in America. Um, it just stopped us in our tracks after, you know, we, we were like going, are we going to go to America? No, we're not. Yeah. And so I met up with Walter Yetnikoff, who um, you probably heard, Walter Yetnikoff's big, big sort of famous guy at CBS. He wanted to put our record out, so he, put, he invited me over to America, put us in the Washington, Washington Park Hotel, said, look, I want to put your record out, yeah. but I want to do it illegally. And I'm like, Phew. so it wasn't straightforward. It was just like, and, you know, I was, I was kind of, I really wanted to move to America. I really wanted to do it. I'd, I'd started my, my sort of, you know, thing in America in 1988 on that holiday. And I really wanted to do music there, but it never happened. And so it's always been a bit of a bugbear for me that, you know, that I never managed to do that. But, you know, there's always time. <laughs> and what about, like, just the songs on Homegrown and, and Feepy Sweet? You know, is there some real favourites in there? Oh, yeah. I mean, I think... Personally, I sort of, I look at Homegrown and think it's the most sort of, uh, it sounds from start to finish that it's the same album, okay. yeah, yeah. which I like. And, and I used to think that about Teenage Fan Club, actually. Yeah. You know, um, Grand Prix, really liked that album, and Bandwagon-esque, and I really liked a lot of their songs, and I liked their sound that they had, that they carried on through. Free Piece Suite was very different because I was getting into DJ Shadow and... Yeah. Uh, Beck had come out and, you know, there was a lot more sort of, and Trip Hop had come out, you know, Portishead and okay. all that sort of stuff. So that was playing a big part in my writing. Like I was starting to use loops and samplers. You wouldn't know because they were like, the demos I was doing were all samples and stuff like that. But then they would play through to the headphones of the drum of math and he'd play along. Okay. So it was all like reproduced. Uh, so we weren't having to have sample clearance, but that was a specific idea. But it was trying to keep up with the times. In a sense, you know, I was listening to a lot of, I remember Goldie's first album coming out and listening to the technology and how they were making the beats and cutting beats. So so Free Piece Suite has a little bit of that. Oh, it's a bit more of a time, whereas Homegrown could be 60s, 70s, 80s. Yeah. Free Piece Suite sounds a little bit more 90s. Yeah. Yeah, and I think my I was going back. I think the album I'm releasing in October, which is called Make Believe Love, that sounds like an extension from that. So there's a lot more. There's more. There's some very simple acoustic songs, but there's more sort of uh, technology as well. So, but as songs, and actually I listened to it, and it's it came out while well, it was finished in 2000, but 20 years on, it doesn't sound date. It doesn't sound out of date or dated. So that's quite interesting. I'm really interested to see how people listen to it. Yeah, I'm excited for that to, to come out. And 
you know, just before you were talking about some old demos you had and, you know, old Bluetooth stuff as well, you know, will those see the light of day, those types of things as extensions? Yeah, yeah. I've, spoke to, I've spoke to Mark about it. I'd really be happy to, like, sort of, you know, um, give them to Mark as long as I get a credit for recording them and keeping them more like, you know, and looking after them. Um, I, 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 it just takes time and, you know, everything does. I've, and I, the last sort of four years, apart from gigging, I've just been writing, but I haven't been finishing. (laughs) Um, I I love, I love coming up with ideas. I'm just like the best ideas man in the world, you know. I love it. I just get buttons going, get my guitar on, get an idea. But I don't finish. Yeah. So what I did this year was I said to myself, right, I'm not going to write any new songs. I'm just going to finish and I'm going to go back. Hence why Make Believe Love's coming out. That's the start so I can clear it. And now I'm just going through. So I had, I went on holiday to Wales. We've got a caravan in West Wales. And I went on holiday and I had about 400 ideas on a little phone thing a little uh, recorder and I've gone I'm on 295 but I found songs for Mark and Chris I found songs for me as a solo artist possible songs for Dodgy if we ever do anything in the future so and and some that were crap and but I've got to finish them now I I don't know if Mark or Chris are are good complete finishers but you might be able to rope them in I think Mark (laughs) I think Mark's got a lot I think Mark will be I think Chris is the same as me yeah yeah but the good thing is we've got somebody overlooking it. We've got a manager sort of thing who's overlooking it. So that's really good. So he can keep us focused. Because the idea is, I mean, go into a proper studio and sell it to a label and get a label interested, you know, at the same time and see, see if we can combine the three sort of audiences to do in like, especially for festivals and gigs. It's something new. It's, you know, and, pl- and maybe play each other's, a couple of each other's songs from their past, but it's, it's the three of us writing new material, I think, that I'm most interested yeah. in. Well, I, I think the majority of the audience that are like me, you know, that love the 90s and stuff, they will be keen and they'll want to hear new things from you and hopefully yeah. the other people are actually hungry for... Yeah, know. I definitely think this is going to be... We've got quite a few gigs. I think we're in... I think we might be in Brighton next next November. <laughs> <That's it. laughs> nice and cold. <laughs> not this, not 2020. Oh, no, 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 2021. No. Yeah. And then I suppose you, you sort of were around for Britpop, but I wouldn't have said you were like, you know, classic, 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 boxed in by Britpop at all. You sort of circumvented it in a way. But what did you think of all that scene when it was happening? Were you kind of happy to jump into it or did you just... Not really. Not really. I mean, I think it was, I mean, we were already on our way. I mean, so... By the time a lot of like the Britpop bands started coming through, we'd already done an album. We, you know, we had Oasis support us. Everyone supported us, really. You know, so um, and that was our first look, and that wasn't really Britpop. Um, yeah, I didn't really, I didn't really get involved. I think it was a lot like probably similarities to what punk was like. So when punk came out initially in 1976 yeah. you know at the, the Hope and Anchor in Islington and Screen on the Green and the Marquee in 76 with the Damned and the Pistols that was their punk yeah, yeah. London was new so I think that our our Britpop as a band was probably 91, 92 yeah. so we were like you know that was really good by the time 94, 95 came we were so busy we, did, we weren't even in Britain do you know what I mean oh, wow. half the time so you know, it didn't really, 
And it just felt like a little bit of an amalgamation and un, un, a little bit like it was a little bit like everyone was wearing Fred Perry again. So it was, it was like a sort of nod towards mod, uh, you know, and it was just like, it was very, it was, I just felt quite cynical about it, not in a nasty way, but I just thought, well, you know, come on, can't we think of something new? Yeah, yeah, yeah. You know what I mean? You know, so it just felt a little bit lazy. And then I thought that, you know, that journalism got a bit lazy as well. I thought that they, the whole thing that was manufactured around Blur and Oasis was just boring and a little bit stupid and a little bit trivial. But then I think that it, I've always felt that like a lot of the music press around that time, there was a really great period from late early 90s and late 80s until about 93, maybe 94, when they just, I just felt it got dumbed down a little bit. And, yeah. you know, and I've, I've always felt that about, you know, so that period, I never listened to it. I mean, people have asked me to do Britpop DJ and I'm like, go, I don't listen to it, you know, it's not mine, you know. It's asking it's like asking the birds to do something about sixties and they wouldn't have be going, Well, we like Charlie Mingus, do you know what I mean? Yeah, it's yeah. that same question. So we're into different things. It's like asking the Cess Pistols to do a punk disco and then going, Well, we like Mock the Hoople and the Who and Small Faces. Yeah, yeah, yeah. It's not my thing. Britpop wasn't about me, it wasn't for me. We were actually, we, at the time, we were saying that we didn't like the idea of it being, it was so nationalistic, saying Brit. Because, Brit. Yeah. you know, why should you do that? Why should you have that nationalism tag? You know, I mean, I know it's a small thing, but we were quite political back in the day. And that was an important thing to say, really. I don't want to be like flag-waving Union Jack nationalism because I don't believe in it. Well, it's kind of interesting because like, 92, there was Madstock, and then there was obviously Morrissey with the flag, and that all kind of went a bit wrong. And then a couple of years later, you've got Brett Anderson on the front of Select with the same sort of, you know, sort of imagery. And yeah, it did seem, did seem quite weird. And, yeah. It was quite weird because Suede were like, uh, I mean, I forgot about Suede, but they were like sort of, at the time, without ever meeting them and knowing them, they were like our invisible enemies or we never met them but oh. they were getting all the press but we were still going at the same time but we were just getting nothing and swayed and it was like I was listening to the records and going why is it you know I just didn't I didn't get it yeah, but yeah. possibly because my age I was uh, you know jealous or envious of their career and how it, it like from their first single they went on to Top of the Pops and did all this our first single went into the bargain bins <laughs> right, I'm just I'm looking at time as well. I better let you go soon because I know you'll be busy. Um, but there was a couple of other things you see. So um, as you were approaching the end of the nineties, obviously dodgy sort of parted ways a bit. You started doing some solo stuff. So yeah, so what happened sort of there? I think I mean, I think I think the bubble burst really, and I think that by ninety seven. You know, the Britpop thing was in full swing, really. You know, everyone was bringing records out, uh, you know. And we combined with the fact that we couldn't get our record released in America and the fact that the relationship between myself, the management, the band, had really sort of suffered over the years and suffered through mismanagement, I, I now know. 
uh, I, I believe mismanagement from the record company, the publishing, management, us. I think it was just we, we took our eye off the ball and I was allowed to escape through the back door and get away from it all. I just wanted out. I just wanted out. I just, I found, there's new words for it now, but I found the whole situation toxic. Yeah. I found that there was a million reasons to make me go, but not one that wanted me to stay. I couldn't think of one and it was horrible. It was absolutely terrible. Um, I think after that, I really sort of, I struggled with confidence for a long time, really. I didn't do a gig. I didn't do any gigs for like, I think probably four or five years. I just had no confidence. I just, and I, and I went away and I recorded that album in Birmingham, did a couple of gigs, couldn't finish it, sort of like put it to bed, went and got a job did normal things for a little while, but kept having a studio. I built another studio. I did, every time I do something, yeah. if I go back to a job and I went and worked, I'd just save money and build another studio yeah. and just go straight, because I've always been creative in that way. So what I do is like I have no, you know, I'm a bit, really, really speaking, you know, it's like you want me to say interesting things, but I'm quite sort of like, I like just being in my studio writing music. Yeah. It's not that interesting. Well, what's, what's interesting about it is it's almost like when you're becoming a parent is that you do a bit of nesting before your baby, your project, you know? So yeah. A, a spiritual sort of uh, ritual sort of thing. Mm -hmm. You've got to, I did do that. I yeah. did do that. I had, I had two kids by the time I'd left Dodgy. And, you know, I wanted to make sure that I had a relationship with them that I possibly never had with my parents. Yeah. Because I was third in line and... I got away with everything when I was a kid. Because it was, you know, I just, I, I didn't feel anyone was good watching me. I got away with a lot. But like with my children, I wanted to be there. I wanted to be involved. And, you know, there was always something to, to do. But, but yeah, I mean, it, it, was, it was a long journey. And, and it's weird because the music industry is so aimed towards young people. Yeah, it's only when you get to a certain age, like I'm 53 now, and I'm, I feel that like I'm a better singer, mm -hmm. I'm a better writer, better player, better everything. I'm better. The only things I can't do are physical stuff like play, like a better corner kicker. I was a good <laughs> corner kicker, but not in free kicks, you know, but like those sort of things. But like music and just being able to express yourself, you know, it's a lot easier now. And I feel that. I've worked really hard to sort of, you know, I, I went up and I went down and I've managed to be able to push it back up again. Yeah. And, you know, I, from last year, I got dodgy. We got dodgy in a really good place. I got my solo gigs in a good place. We've done, and I feel that like, you know, even through this sort of pandemic, I, I seem to think that, you know, I've got a lot of positivity about the next few years, music-wise. Yeah. It's kept me sane all the way through, really. I just wasn't prepared to, 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 to sell my music anymore for something that I didn't agree with. And so that was, and so, so the end of Dodgy was very, you know, I, I thought it wouldn't happen, but I wasn't prepared to give, give over what I believed. And then it just... That I just remember we go into solicitors or legals and they said, right. And there was no fight to keep me. Right. And there was no fight to sort of like go, okay, that's nothing. They just wanted the name. And I felt like, okay, see how it is. So I just went, right, you can have a fucking name. And I just, and I just got out of it. And, 
you know, in retrospect, uh, I would have preferred to, I mean, maybe I should have just taken some time out and just gone, right, I'm going to take the next year out. But those sort of things can be very damaging to careers anyway. So, um, but yeah, 10 years apart and then getting back together again, we didn't even talk for those 10 years, really, which is quite strange. So you realise that, you know, bands, one of your questions was about the chemistry of the band. And uh, the chemistry of the band was has always been brilliant musically. I wouldn't say it was brilliant as in any other way. I mean, I think I think friendships over 30 years and when they're involved in business do suffer. Yeah. And I think that, you know, really, we don't really see each other as a, as friends that much. Do you know what I mean? We just, we, you know what I mean? It's like, yeah, but, it's, but, it, but it works like that. And it's like, you asked Bruce, I I remember reading Bruce Springsteen book last year and he said, you know, the E Street Band, he says, they're a great band, but none of them would I hang out with. And I kind of, you know, and I mean, I know this sounds bad, but you've got to find like-minded people. And and me, Matthew and Andy, we are all really good and we complement each other musically and we can get in a studio and we can write and we can finish things, which is great. But as to going out, we're very, we're all very different. We have very different needs. I think you know we're all very different. Yeah, I, I think that's the thing. I mean, I've you know a business partnership, so I can you know empathise with what you're saying as well. You know, and as it's it's your mates, but they're business partners, and and it's hard. And you know, I've split up with them in the last couple of years. So, um, but you know, we talk now and again, but we probably won't talk for a few years, and then something else might happen in a few years' time. It's just the way it goes, you know. Yeah, absolutely. It's, it's a hum. It's not. I don't take it personally, and I don't want them to. I think it's just the way that that human nature is. You know, it's hard to be together all the time, and, and it's easy to be together when money and stuff like that, and it's very important decisions aren't done. But you see, me being the singer always made me like the sort of band leader because yeah. there's no band without me. And so when they went off and did their other album with another singer, I was like, good luck. I really wanted them to be successful, by the way. But I think that, you know, what's come out of it now is that like, you know, yes, that is the case. You know, if I don't go to the gig, you know, if I'm not there, it's not a dodgy gig, really. So I understand that pressure. And I'm, I'm aware of that now. I, I really found that difficult when I was younger, you know, yeah. but I know it now. And I'm not, I'm not there to make anyone's life miserable I just want it to be right you know so I will have the last say now you know if someone offers us a gig everyone can go yeah we'll do it and I'm like "Mm, I'm not sure (laughs) or whatever I'm glad that we're back together and I'm glad that you know hopefully we'll hopefully be doing some gigs next year because it's the 25th anniversary of Freaky Sweet next year so the idea being that we were trying to get some gigs but I feel that the industry has got to play catch up with itself for all those cancelled gigs, so we might not, we might have another year plus of no gigs. So I don't know. I don't know what I'm going to do. Maybe a gardening business. I've never done it. I'll try. I'll try. <laughs> I don't know. I'm just going. I'm just going to go into my new studio and I want to release some music. I'm going to do online gigs for as long as I can. Yeah. Uh, because it keeps me. When I was doing those lockdown gigs, it was brilliant because. You have something to look forward to each week, and you have to learn new songs. And the real, and I love that pressure. I love that pressure. Yeah. It's great. So, a couple of final things. Then, uh, obviously, uh, if you want to promote anything and, and tell people, so you've got the the album coming out in October, the gigs are coming up. 
Is there any other any other things that I can put it all in the show notes for you to? Those are those are the only two things that I've got planned. I've got a gig in Norfolk on first Friday in September. My album's coming out in October on Townsend's, but I'll put all that all on my Facebook page and stuff like that. I'm really excited about that. So I'm doing vinyl, pink vinyl. You'll get it. It's it's called Make Believe Love anyway, which is a title from. So Lou Reed did an album, not the greatest live album ever, but it's called Take No Prisoners. And I used to listen to it when I was younger. I've had the title for about 25 years. Just, well, yeah, probably about that long. And Lou Reed during Sweet Jane, he goes into this monologue about the two people that are being talked about. And he says, yeah, they sit next to their guests, their electric make-believe fire, and they make-believe love. And he's, he keeps playing and he goes, write that down. That's a great album title. Uh-huh. And so I just wrote it down. And I just had it for years, and then and I just thought, well, it's, it's what it's always been, really. So a nod towards my love of Lou Reed and the Velvet Underground and all that, you know. It was nice to find those little things in there and go, there's a little story around it, but it's good. It's good. I'm really excited about it. And I hopefully will be doing some more lockdown or, or some sort of streamed gigs in my new studio, hopefully starting from next week. Great. Well, definitely push those as much as I can. No, thank you. So- some quick fire things before you go then. So, best song of the 90s. God, best song of the 90s. Bloody hell. Um, I will go with Race for the Prize by the Flaming Lips. A bit, oh. a bit different. I love that song. And then, best album of the 90s, is it Flaming Lips? I think so too, yeah. I'm a big fan. Best band of the 90s. Bloody hell. I'm going to go Radiohead. Yeah, good show. Even though I'm not a massive, I like some of it. I couldn't listen to them all the time, but yeah. I really like their music. You know? I just respect them, don't you? you know? Yeah, yeah. Uh, best gig venue? Best gig venue, probably Brixton Academy. Yeah, good show. Good show. It's, it's always between, you know, a lot of things between that and the Barrowlands is always the... Always mm-hmm. the yeah, exactly. Um, and the Manchester Ritz, actually. Oh, yeah. I forgot about that. Yeah, Manchester Ritz, brilliant. Uh, best... Uh, gig that you went to as a punter in the 90s? Oh, God. Uh, best gig that I went to. Uh, Neil Young at Hyde Park. Oh, yeah. With Booker T and the MGs were his backing band. Did Paul McCartney come on at the end? Nah, this was in the 90s. It was about 94. Oh, this is right. Sorry, I'm thinking it was 2000s. I saw him. Nah. Yeah, yeah. And my other best gig, my other favourite gig, so Neil Young and Booker T and the MGs, and my other favourite gig was DJ Shadow doing the private press at Birmingham Academy in 2000 and something. And then finally, the best gig that you played? Oh, uh, the best gig I, uh, we played. I think, I mean, obviously, the, I'm going to go with one. I mean, I remember I remember playing Reading Festival. I've never, I've been to Reading. Reading was my first ever festival I went to. And I remember we, we played in about, 90, I can't I think it was 96, and Billy Bragg was on before us. Oh. And uh, we were talking to Billy beforehand and we were warming up. And, uh, and it was a bit of a grey day. And Billy Bragg said, I've heard Dodgy practicing their harmonies backstage. They'll bring the sun out. And we went on stage, and as far as I could see, it was the biggest crowd I ever saw at any festival. As far as I could see, it was just people. Everyone had come to watch us. And we started with staying out for the summer. And as usual, I mean, it's a freaky thing. This, and I don't, think, I don't know why. We probably say it now, it won't happen. But when we played staying out for the summer, the sun came out and it was just yeah. like, that, it that was just, 
it was i mean it was it was i think one thing about that gig i felt really relaxed as when i've played glastonbury before i've been really really on on, but reading was like a easy one because it was just like turning up to a gig whereas glastonbury's turning up to a a worldwide event you know what i mean so I, i always found glastonbury a little bit more difficult although i love the festival difficult to play but but reading not such a great festival but a great rock gig you know yeah brilliant well, Nigel, I'll leave it there. Thanks so much for taking the time to talk to me. And yeah, it's a pleasure, man. It's good. With everything that you're doing and the guys as well. And um, yeah, I'll, I'll look out for it all and I'll push it as much as I possibly can. Thank you, man. Thank you very much. Yeah. Okay. Cheers, brother. Keep in touch with us, all right? Bye. Take care. That was really great chatting to Nigel Clark, and I really enjoyed our honest chat and what it was like to be in the good ship dodgy and also Nigel's world outside of that. Some brilliant memories there and I can't wait to hear Nigel's new songs and the possibility of old dodgy demos and Blue Tones demos seeing the light of day. I'll keep my fingers crossed for that happening. Also, if you're lucky enough to be around Norwich on September 4th, it might be a little while before this podcast goes out, you will have had the pleasure or you would have had the pleasure to see Nigel, Chris Helm and Mark Morris getting together to blow everyone away that was there live watching it. So do check that out and also keep abreast of all of the activity from Nigel, Chris and Mark on all of their social media channels, especially Twitter. Nigel has a new album coming out in October called Make Believe Love, as he mentioned in the podcast, which he's very excited about and I hope you are too. Can't wait for that to see the light of day. Follow Nigel on Twitter at dodgy underscore Nigel. That's at dodgy underscore Nigel. And on Instagram at Nigel underscore songs. And lastly, Nigel Clark on Facebook to find out what he's up to. Thanks so much for listening to this episode. I hope that it's filled you with as much joy, nostalgia and happiness that it did for me. Please do share this podcast with your 90s obsessed pals and follow me on at my 90s music podcast on Facebook and Instagram and at my 90s music pod on Twitter. Lastly, please do go to Mixcloud to hear my 90s based radio show. Just search for Supersonic 90s radio show and you'll find it on Mixcloud. Until next time, keep it 90s over and out.